You can turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3. Our sermon text this morning is Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. I'll start in uh, verse 1 of Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Father, God, I ask that you give us the faith to see reality, to see what the good news of our text reveals. Uh, Father, I pray you won't let our hearts be cold to these familiar truths, but that you might renew in us joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what kind of spirit you've come here this morning in. Maybe some of you feel tired. Uh, Some of you might be anxious. Maybe you've been worried about something. Maybe some have come come here this morning with a guilty conscience. Maybe some have come somewhat out of obligation because this is what you're supposed to do. But the reality is you're here. Sometimes we don't think about what it means that we're here at this point in time in history. One of the most terrifying and glorious thoughts in the world is that there is not a person in this room who is not eternal. A soul that's eternal You just think about it for a minute. You literally, at the most, are going to be on this earth for a hundred years. And your soul will never cease to exist. Some might say, oh, that's a glorious thought. Well, isn't it also terrifying? You can't stop it. The person who commits suicide's soul goes on forever. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 3, verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. Even those who say when you die, that's all there is, even they have eternity in their heart. That's why they spend most of their life telling people it ends. Trust me, it ends. They're saying that because they're terrified. They're trying to convince their own 
heart, it's over. When a person passes away. But God has put eternity in all of our hearts. Billions upon billions upon billions have entered into eternity. Only six and a half billion have not yet passed on into this eternity. Think about that. Think of all the billions that right now do not live anymore on this earth with the opportunity you walked into these doors with. You may be tired this morning. You may be thinking about a lot of things, but you're here. You're alive right now. And you won't be someday. Your soul will pass on to eternity. Christ even says, everyone, those who are saved and those who go to hell, will have a resurrection of their body and they will never die. That's the truth. That's reality. And the question I want you to consider this morning, what I want you to consider is, think about the times you've been left out. Has there ever been a party that you wanted to go to and you weren't invited to? Has there ever been a gathering of your family members, maybe at a holiday, but you had to work that holiday? This is the sweetest fellowship of the year and you don't get to be there? Has there ever been a fellowship with people you love that you've had to be on the outside because of whatever circumstances? Why is it that it's those things we don't want to miss out on? That sweet fellowship. That's what I want you to consider. Who do you belong to? What family is your family? Where will you spend eternity. You're only here a short time. And because Satan is so deceptive and our hearts and sin is so deceptive, we don't think about the things that really matter that often. It's just too weighty to think about. And yet, how long will we get our life plan and our career in place and our retirement funds and we'll watch the stock market or we'll do take so much time to build up whatever it is we're doing. And yet, the most valuable thing to us, our soul, we spend such little time thinking about. Where will you be when you pass on? You know, some people say, well, I don't believe in this type of preaching. It's, it's preaching that puts fear in people. Well, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. You know why? Because no one has ever been more loving than Christ. You know how many times Christ told us ahead of time what we ought to know, that we ought to flee from the wrath to come, that we ought to run to the place of shelter. Let me just read a few of these verses so you don't just think that hell was fabricated by religious people. Revelation 20.10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, 
and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the same lake that the very next passage of Scripture says those who haven't trusted in Christ will be thrown into. There will not be an end to it. You say, well, that's cruel. Why is there no end to hell? Because the one with whom you sinned against has eternal glory. And the only thing that's just is eternal punishment. And our God is just. How about Luke 3.17? His winnowing fork is in His hand. This is John the Baptist. To clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. How about Mark 9.43? And if your hand sins, causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter eternal life. That's forever life. Crippled. Then with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. And here's the worst part. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The worst part about hell is not the fire. It's you'll spend eternity outside of the sweetest fellowship party there's ever been. At the end of Jesus talking about separating the sheep and the goats, and these will go away, speaking of the goats, to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. How about Luke 13.22? He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once his master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. They'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. This is people saying, I went to church. I heard your preaching. I had your communion. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When, now get this, you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. What's most terrifying about hell, according to this passage, is you might have a clear picture right into heaven. To see Abraham and the prophets in fellowship with their Creator and with the saints and you yourself eternally separated from God. Why do I spend 15 minutes of my sermon in introduction like this, not even looking at the text? Because I'm afraid that if I preach one more sermon, you're saved by faith, we won't feel it. It becomes too normal. What does it mean to be able to be with Abraham and the prophets forever with God in the presence of God? I want you to feel that this morning. I don't know what you felt like coming in, but I pray that the reality of this text would send your soul skipping with praise for the good news that we find here.
This is the background of our text that we're going to look at. Remember, there's brand new churches in Galatia. They've been, they've heard the gospel preached by Paul. Churches began. This group called the Judaizers came in. They say they trust in Christ, but they, but they say you cannot be a part of the party. You cannot be a part of Abraham's family. You cannot be a part of Abraham's blessing unless you're circumcised Gentiles. So these are people who aren't born Jews and they're being told by Judaizers, you will not be accepted if you don't keep the law. Yes, you need Jesus, but you have to keep the law. It's the worst news in the world. Because we're all in trouble if the Judaizers are right. The only reason why they don't think they're in trouble is because they haven't conceptualized the God of the Scriptures. They haven't recognized the foolishness to think they can please God by their own works. They have a false sense of comfort. And what they know is these texts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. We'll start there and then we'll look at Genesis 15 and 17 in a little bit. So if you want to keep a marker in Genesis. But here's the Lord's promise to Abraham. What everyone knew is you cannot be a part of God's family unless you're a part of Abraham's family. The text we're going to look at has to do with identity in Abraham. Here's the promise God gave to then Abram before his name was changed. The Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12.1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land I'll show you, and I'll make you make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's three promises Abraham was given here. Land. He was promised land that the Lord would give him. He was promised a family or children. And he was promised blessing. And that blessing is a blessing that flows through him to others. Now you tell me what the American dream is. What do you want to do? You want to get a good job so you can buy a house, maybe get some land if you're really lucky. I would like some nice land along the river bottom with big bucks running everywhere. Well, I can dream about that, but that's not going to happen. Everybody, what do, what's the American dream? We want property. We want a family. We want to be happy. And God promised Abraham all those things. It's interesting. He promises Abraham, whose wife is barren, that his family's going to be huge. In Genesis 17, 12, uh, <clears throat> we find out what the Judaizers were looking to when they're telling these, this, these, this young church. They're saying, here's how you get in on the promises of Abraham. Here's how you get in on the blessing of God. They would point to Genesis 17, probably starting verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not from your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. 
so shall my covenant be with your flesh, an everlasting covenant. They would say, see, this covenant never ends. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. These people had Bible verses. And they're saying, see, we have proof text that says if you want to be part of the people of God, you need to be circumcised into the people of God. And they viewed this as a work. When they looked at Abraham, they thought God was going to bless Abraham because he was so faithful in his work, in his obedience to God. In fact, in 1 Maccabees 2.52, this is an apocryphal uh, book. This would be in the Catholic Bible. Here's what it says. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God looked at Abraham and says, you were going to kill Isaac? Good enough for me. Righteousness. Or in Surak 44.19, another one of these uh, uh, books written from the last Old Testament prophet to John the Baptist. God didn't send any prophets, but Jewish scholars continued to write. That's these apocryphal books. This, this period in between. Here's what it says in Surah 44.19. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh when he was tested and he proved faithful. And you can read in the book of Jubilee 23.10, another book that isn't part of the Scriptures, for Abraham was perfect in all his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all the days of his life. This gives us a flavor of how they viewed salvation through Abraham. Abraham was the best. We need to be the best. He was obedient, so we need to be obedient so we can be a part of Abraham's family. Let's look at what our text says. Paul, after hearing that, you're going to see how he's running upstream with the Jewish teachers or the Judaizers in his day. In verse 6, Galatians 3.6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now just wait. Paul is pointing to Genesis 15 verse, verses 5 and 6. Here's what that says. And he brought him outside and said, look to heaven and the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. Here's what's going on in Genesis 15. At the beginning of Genesis 15, Abraham's saying, my only descendant I'm going to have is Eleazar. He's not even from my own seed. God takes him out, shows him the stars, and says, no, Abraham, your offspring is going to be like these stars. And Abraham believed God that that was true, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All of Genesis 15 is about God's working. At the end of this, Gen or, uh, Abraham has a vision where there animals cut in half 
separated, the way you made a covenant is you cut animals in half and you would, the two parties would walk between the animals and a covenant would be cut. But Yahweh is pictured in the fire and Yahweh walks through it, not Abraham. This is God's way of saying, here's how the covenant's going to be kept. I'm going to keep it. And you're, it's going to be credited to you because you believed, not because you kept it. All throughout Abraham's life, we see Abraham not being a perfect man, but rather trusting in his own goodness. When he lies because he thinks they're going to kill him and steal Sarah, his wife, when he lies, what's he trying to do? He's trying to preserve his life. Well, God's given him a promise that Sarah's going to have many children. But Abraham fails on his end. God keeps his end. How about when Abraham is uh, to the point where he, he cannot see how God can keep his promise? So he takes the advice of his wife and he sleeps with Hagar, his wife's maidservant. And he's going to fulfill the promise on his own. And God says, no, I'm going to do it through Sarah. I'm going to keep the promise. You keep trying to do it your own way. Abraham is not succeeding. He's trying to keep God's promise in his flesh. And God's going to do it miraculously as he opens Sarah's womb. And so we're taught that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is not an ethical statement. He didn't believe God and then God said, zap, you're perfect man now. That didn't happen. He believed God and in his account, forensically, judicially, God says, not guilty. Perfect righteousness in your account. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He didn't become righteous. This is exactly what Paul is teaching in Romans 4, 2. If you have your Bibles, turn here. I'm telling you, there is no better news than this news Paul is giving us. Romans 4, 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is unbelievable. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. This is the best news in the world for a room full of ungodly people. Because if you believe that Jesus Christ finds not guilty ungodly people because they trust in Jesus' sacrifice, righteousness is counted to you. Everyone else in the world trying to be good enough by their works is going to be found having to be judged by the law. If you want to live by the law, you'll die in the law. But Abraham believed and it was credited to his account as though he was righteous, even though he isn't righteous. This is one of the difference between 
a Protestant church and a Roman Catholic church. What the Roman Catholic church teaches at this point is when a person trusts by faith in Christ by receiving the sacraments, God infuses into them supernaturally righteousness. And a person can't enter heaven until enough righteousness is infused into that person. That's why they would need to go to purgatory and maybe spend thousands, maybe even millions of years being purged of sin before they could enter heaven. But the Bible teaches what we just read here in Romans 4.2, and to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, not the righteous, His faith is counted as righteousness. No one can be a part of God's family without righteousness. You cannot enter heaven with sin and you can't enter heaven without a fullness of righteousness. So if we're going to enter heaven, then we need to somehow get that righteousness somewhere outside of ourselves. We can't conjure it up. We can't be good enough. Abraham wasn't good enough. These Judaizers are preaching the worst news in the world. And if this, these young churches trust in their works, they'll go to hell forever as they try to do what they never could do. Because Romans 1, what do we read? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What? What do you do when you sin? God's revealed who He is. You take that revelation, you push it down, you suppress it, and you begin to worship what God created rather than God. All as a non-believer is in the world is a worshiper of God's creation. One person's worshiping this sport, another person's worshiping this music, this guy's worshiping his job, this woman's worshiping her children. Everybody's worshiping. But a person who doesn't receive the wrath of God for ungodliness is the person who trusts by faith in Jesus and righteousness is turned over as a gift from Christ to us. There is no better trade. Here, Jesus, you take my sin and die under the wrath of God for my sin. Jesus says, give me your sin. He asks you to give it to Him. He takes it. He bears the punishment for your sin under the wrath of God. And then in return, He gives you His perfect life. It's taking your F on in the class of life, giving it to Jesus, and He gives you His A+. Why? Because you were better than someone else? No. Because you realized you actually really are sinful. And there is no other hope but believing in a God who justifies the ungodly. This is why in Romans 10, Paul's heart is for these Jewish brothers of his. Listen to what he says. My, my brothers, our brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. These are people that want to be godly. They trying as hard as they can to go to church and live a godly life and please God. He says they have a zeal for godliness, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. 
They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says they don't realize that when Jesus came, that that was the end of this law. Even in Abraham's day, the only way a person was saved was by faith. Abraham believed God's promise that was looking forward to Christ. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then look at verse 7. Remember I said this whole text has to do with who's a part of Abraham's family? Who's going to receive the land? Who's going to receive family? Who's going to receive blessing and be a blessing? Know then, verse 7 says, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Here's what he's saying. The Judaizers say it's the ones who get circumcised and keep the law the way we do. Paul says no. It's the ones of faith who are of the family of Abraham who are sons of Abraham. Here's one important thing I want to point out before we go to the next verse. Faith is not the righteousness that God counts, but it's faith that unites us to our righteousness, which is Christ. God didn't look down at Abraham's faith and say, well, that was pretty good. I'm going to throw that in your account and we'll call that good. No. Faith in God's promise, God's promise is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Abraham's righteousness, he's linked to Christ's righteousness by believing that he was going to get it there. Because we can kill ourselves by thinking we're saved by the goodness of our faith. There's never been a human being except for Christ who's had perfect faith. It's an illustration that I heard one preacher give about this real confident, strong man who stands at the Grand Canyon, this huge canyon hundreds of feet above the bottom and there's this rickety old rope bridge. And he's looking at the crowds watching him. He says, watch this. I'm not afraid of this. I'll go right across it. He's a man of strong confidence and strong faith that that bridge is going to hold him. And he gets on that bridge and he gets halfway across and the rope snaps and he dies. Where did his great faith get him? Dead. So let's rewind this scenario. Let's say there's this huge steel and concrete bridge that goes across the canyon. And there's this little old frail lady who is scared to death. You know, she heard that bridge collapse to Minneapolis. This one might collapse too as I get over the canyon. And uh, she walks across with her little bitty faith and she doesn't die. Why? Because it wasn't the perfection of the faith that saves a person. It's the what is your faith in? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, that bridge will never collapse. And by the way, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life described his life as a fight of faith. He never arrived and coasted on. He had to battle unbelief every moment he woke up. Your faith is not your righteousness. Jesus Christ is. Your faith in Christ, even as failing as it may be, will link you to the bridge that will never collapse. I don't know about you, but this is good news. But it's not good news. I'm on point two and we're at 38 minutes. So, let's quickly go through the second part of this text. So, point one, you are in Abraham's family standing right with God. 
by faith. Look at verse 8. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then it is those of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Scripture foreseen, this is Scripture being personified. God speaks Scripture. Always knew that He was going to justify Gentiles by faith. This Galatian church, God always knew they were going to be saved not by circumcision, but by faith. Even when God, before God, preached this to Abraham, this was in God's plan to save the nations by faith. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, it is those who are of faith that are blessed. How are you going to become a part of God's family standing right before Him by faith? How are you going to get in on Abraham's blessing? By faith. It's always been that way. Salvation has always come by trusting God by faith and not by work. Now, I know you hear that, but you're going to be tempted this week to think you're justified because you had a good day. You really will think that. Are you supposed to fight sin with everything you have? You better believe it. Is there anything that God has left us so that we can't fight sin? We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's Word. He gives us a way out of every temptation. There is no excuse not to fight sin. But you're fighting sin better one day than another has nothing to do with the reason why God would accept you. God accepts people on Christ's righteousness who trust in Him by faith. Those who trust by faith get the Holy Spirit and they happen to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit and they fight sins and show evidence that they've been saved by Christ's righteousness. Not that they can earn it. So that brings us to the last point. Are you aware of the ultimate reason you have believed? If you have. If you're here today and you're trusting in Christ, here's a good question. Why did you believe and not your neighbor? Why did you believe and not your neighbor? I just had to write a paper for my church history class on whose view of God's sovereignty and human responsibility is more biblical, Augustine's or Cassian's? Uh, uh, semi-Pelagian writer, which uh, let me just explain it this way. There's a guy named Pelagius who said after Adam sinned and he had children, his children were in the same position Adam was in before he sinned. He could do good or he could do evil, but no effect, no spiritual effect was passed on to his children. So, for a person to believe in God, for a person to be saved, Pelagius said, God needs, our man needs no help. He can do it on his own. Well, then another guy came along, Cassian, who said, no, when Adam sinned and gave birth to the human race, uh, a fallen human race, man can almost do nothing. 99% of his life needs to be done by the grace of God. But here's what God does according to Cassian. He says this, when God sees in us the very smallest spark of goodwill shining forth, which He Himself has struck out of the flints of our heart, He fans and fosters it and nourishes it with His breath. So God's looking down on mankind and He's saying, where's the spark of goodness? Where's the, they can almost do nothing good. Oh, I see a spark. And God in His grace starts fanning it and starts getting a flame going. So the Cassian says 
of that blazing fire of faith is God's credit. But he could not fan it into being, Cassian said, unless he first saw the spark. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but that's heresy. That's heretical. It's a semi-Pelagian view. Augustine has all sorts of arguments against this. He says, no, man is spiritually dead in Adam. His freedom of his will can only function inside of his nature, and his nature is he's spiritually dead, and all he can do is choose what sins he wants to do. What he can't choose to do is resurrect the part of his life that died in Adam. So now, I know this is at the end of the sermon, and this is going to take a little bit to follow, but look at Romans 4 with me. Because this is what will make you sing this last song with a worshipful heart if you see this. Look at Romans 4 starting in verse 16. One of Augustine's arguments came from this text. And the question he's asking is, so what was Abraham's faith in? Cassian would say this. So let's put the question this way. How can God make this promise? Cassian would say, because God looks into the future, which God can do, and He knows who's going to have sparks in their heart that He's going to be able to fan into a flame. So the reason why God can make this promise to Abraham, Cassian would say, is God knows who's going to have good sparks in their hearts and who's not. Augustine says, no, look at this text. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. No, no guarantee can be given unless grace is the cause here. Not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. So that's the promise. And then Paul says this, in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, he hoped and believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Here's Abraham's faith. God can call into existence that which is not there. God can raise from the dead that which is dead. So he goes on to say, look at verse 21. Here's what his faith was in. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham's faith was not that God could foresee what he had promised, but that God himself was going to make children out of Abraham. How do you become children of Abraham? Say it. By what? Faith. Well, is God able to create faith? Because Abraham's faith is that God was going to do it. Not just know it. Which means, if you're believing here today, it's not because you're smarter than your neighbor who has not believed yet. It's because God in His grace has given you eyes to see that which you could not see unless you were resurrected spiritually to see it. And He's gifted you faith. I could show you so many verses. Paul argues, 1 Corinthians 4.7, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? These arrogant, cocky 1 Corinthians, he's saying, what do you have that God has not given you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 talks about faith is a gift of God. In Philippians 1, 19, it says, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but suffer for him. How do you believe? It's been granted to you to believe. 
2 Corinthians 4.4, here's unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers, so many unbelievers have heard the truth of God and they haven't seen the light of the glory of it. They could even maybe tell you what the gospel is, but they can't love it. The God of this world has blinded the minds of non-believers. You're not a victim. You are already a non-believer, so Satan's job wasn't that hard. But he comes and blinds you more. But how did you get saved? Two verses later. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. Corinthians. Here's why you believe. Because of the same God, when there was nothing, God said, let there be light, is the one who said, let there be light in your heart. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ became the most valuable thing in your life. If you're believing here today, you're a part of Abraham's family, and you for all eternity will be welcome to the party of God. There's a party in heaven every time a sinner repents. There's perfect fellowship in heaven. It's like never-ending Christmas except your family members won't be sinners anymore if they're there. Why? Because of the grace of God who's granted us faith. Father, my prayer is that all of us here would be humbled by the best news in the world that we're not saved because we're good enough, but we're saved because You were gracious enough to even open our eyes so that we could believe and be connected to Christ that is our righteousness. I pray that You would work in our hearts, Lord, that this would be true of us that we could literally go to bed at night in peace knowing that You're a God who justifies ungodly believers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.